As the bells outside the Grand Kremlin Palace strike noon, Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin takes his oath of office. Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin вступил в должность президента Российской Федерации. He receives a standing ovation as he becomes president of Russia for the second time last year, with more than 70% of the vote. This is the man who vowed to impose order and stability after the chaos of the 90s. For officials like Vasily Yakomenko, Putin is a national savior. Putin is the only person who knows what to do, and he is the only person who believes Russia can be both democratic and truly independent. That is his fundamental quality. But despite the enormous margin of his victory, Putin may be losing his grip. Although he enjoys great personal popularity, polls show that only a minority think he's handling Russia's problems successfully. And so far, Putin's second term has been plagued by terrorism, social unrest and embarrassing failures in foreign policy. In this BBC World Service series, Putin's Russia 2005, I examine whether the president really does have a winning strategy for his country. During the last five years, Russia became less democratic, more corrupted, more monopolized. This is how opposition MP Vladimir Rizhkov sums up Putin's presidency. Rich people became richer, poor people became poorer. Last but not least, Chechnya. Putin promised five years ago that he will stop war in Chechnya and he will stop terrorism. As a result, we have two times more terroristic acts year by year and we have two times more year by year victims. Both Russia's crash jets show the telltale... At least ten people have been killed. And traces of explosive have now been found at both crash sites. The hunt is on for those... Russian prosecutors later discovered that the female suicide bombers had managed to bribe their way past security to board two domestic airliners which crashed within minutes of each other last August. All 90 passengers on board died. Ten days later, another Chechen suicide bomb outside a Moscow metro station. Three days after that, as children returned to their classrooms, the appalling hostage crisis in the North Caucasian town of Beslan. Putin came to power promising to resolve the crisis in Chechnya. His popularity was founded on his decision to send troops back into the breakaway republic. Russians were impressed by a sober, tough-talking presidential candidate who was shown on TV practicing judo. Many admired him for his past as a KGB officer and his famous pledge to finish off Chechen rebels wherever they may be, even if they were hiding on the toilet. But five years on, Europe's longest-running but least visible war is spreading to other parts of the northern Caucasus. The death toll in Chechnya increases by the day, but Russia, too, has paid a high price. More than 20,000 soldiers, many of them young conscripts, have been killed, and many who survive physically are left with shattered lives. One of the few groups which pays attention to the terrible cost of Chechnya is the Soldiers' Mothers' Committee. 
It's the country's biggest non-governmental organization, but you wouldn't know it from their office. Two tiny rooms where the phones never stop ringing. This February, the committee's leader Valentina Mielnikova came to London to try and start the process towards peace in Chechnya. The Russian government ignored the initiative, and some MPs called Mielnikova a traitor. But she's unfazed by the criticism, and now she says her group is going into politics. It wasn't an easy decision. But the main reason is that we used to have deputies in the Duma who would work with us. After the parliamentary elections in 2003, we saw that there was no political life left in Russia. No politicians interested in military reform, the needs of people serving in the army, or anything like that. That's why we realized that we'd have to set up our own party to get those issues taken seriously. The task, Melnikova says, is all the more urgent because of Putin's determination to strengthen what he calls his vertical of power, control over all aspects of state. After the crisis in Beslan, he announced he was replacing popular elections for the governors of Russia's 89 regions with an appointment system. He said it would help fight terrorism, but some described the move as Putin's September revolution—a step back to the Soviet era. But when I ask Valentina Matvienko, the governor of St. Petersburg and a Putin loyalist, about the controversial change, she can't see what all the fuss is about. This kind of questions is usually asked by the Westerners, who are not totally aware of the type of realities we are faced with. I have been elected by the entire population of Saint Petersburg. I've been through all this horror. And believe me, if the time had come for me to be re-elected, I would have never, never agreed to face it. I'm not afraid of the elections, but uh, I must say that the democratic institutions are only taking shape in the country, and、um, in the absence of true democratic institutions, organized crime and some of the financial groups are pushing towards power with their own nominees. From her tone of voice and the look in her eyes, I see I've touched a raw nerve. Matvienko may have been the Kremlin-backed candidate in 2003, but she just squeezed through on the second round. Three quarters of the electorate stayed away to register their disgust at a blatantly biased campaign, including a public endorsement from the president in breach of election law. Matvienko and Putin go back a long way. He worked with her when he was deputy mayor of Russia's second city. The president values loyalty above all else, but this makes him vulnerable, says Lilia Shevtsova, an analyst from the Moscow Carnegie Center. The more Mr. Putin takes power, the more he centralizes the,、uh, the power, the more he is responsible, accountable for all failures, blunders made by his regional appointees in the provinces. And now, according to the polls, nearly 88 percent of Russians started to blame Mr. Putin and Moscow authorities. Whereas, for instance, two years ago, only 12 percent of Russians were blaming the center, and the rest were blaming their regional governors and their regional legislatures. So this is a kind of paradoxical trap. Shevtsova believes Putin is becoming dangerously isolated, surrounded by his narrow group of advisers in the Kremlin. To supporters like Valentina Matvienko, though, he's a heroic figure who protects the welfare of his people. 
Last month, for instance, Putin sacked a Far Eastern governor for failing to provide heating fuel to freezing villages. Of course, it would be easier for Putin to let people stew their own juice if they selected a bad governor. You say he will now have to take the blame himself, but in fact, he does this willingly because he believes it's his job. As the president of a big, complex federal state, he consciously takes the huge responsibility of running this country onto his own shoulders. Boris Nemtsov is a leading liberal politician and a former governor of Nizhny Novgorod, one of Russia's largest cities. When I speak to him for this BBC documentary, he certainly doesn't believe that Putin's drive to centralize power will make Russia a better-run place. He repeated once again Soviet mistake. Brezhnev or Stalin or all of previous leaders, they believe that only Kremlin is ready to control everybody. Hugest country in the world, in one brain, how to control it? The main result of such kind of mistaken policy is mismanagement inside Kremlin, because they have no time to make all of the decisions in the country. From pensioners up to our foreign policy, etc. Mismanagement leads to huge social conflicts, like what's happened a few weeks ago on the streets of Russia. The first real signs of popular discontent with Putin came from some of those who had been among his most dogged supporters, Russia's pensioners. On January the 10th, 500 elderly protesters from the suburb of Khimki, just west of the capital, linked arms and blocked the road to one of Moscow's airports. They were furious about the welfare reforms, which replaced benefits like free travel passes and medicines, with miserly cash handouts. Yuri Kalajirin, who gets a pension of three and a half thousand rubles, or 120 dollars a month, was also distressed to find that maintenance costs for his flat had shot up by a third. Perhaps they thought with all the fuss over losing our bus passes, we simply wouldn't notice. But of course we did. After a few hours, they sent out Omon, the riot police. I went up to a lieutenant colonel and explained that we were desperate. We had been driven to this kind of behavior by these idiotic reforms. And he patted me on the back and said, "Okay, Grandpa, but my orders are to clear the Leningradskaya Shosse." So they tried to push us off the road, and people started shouting, "Shame on you! Shame on the police! Shame on Amon!" The Himki demonstration did get results. The pensioners got their travel cards back. Regional authorities across the country, horrified by punch-ups between pensioners and bus conductors, hurriedly restored subsidised transport. The problem was that the government drastically miscalculated the number of people eligible for benefits. What's more, cash shortages in the regions meant many got nothing. A hundred MPs called for a vote of no confidence, and even the head of the Russian Orthodox Church registered his disapproval. Again, playing the good czar betrayed by bad advisers, Putin accused his finance minister of extreme inefficiency and ordered him to pay out four billion dollars in extra subsidies. Business, 
A restaurant in downtown Moscow advertising its delicious sushi and its business lunch menu. Pensioners in and around the capital are all the more incensed by the clumsy welfare reform because they're surrounded by signs of a consumer boom. To add insult to injury, Russia's currently awash with petrol dollars because of high world oil prices. But Vyacheslav Nikonov, an analyst close to the Kremlin, says oil prices won't stay high forever and argues that the shock therapy is needed to slash waste, cut tax and eventually deliver better targeted benefits. He calls Putin courageous for bringing in the most liberal reform in Russian history. Yeltsin never dared to eliminate the socialist communist welfare system. So, and that was done only because... Putin is to re-establish some governability of the country and has some reform agenda. Do you think he's a strong president? Well, Putin is definitely a strong president, uh, though sometimes he's not making decisions. He, he's cautious, but he's popular. Even now, with all the problems he, he's got in foreign policy and domestically, his approval rating is uh, around 66%, quite an impressive figure compared especially with 3% President Yeltsin had in 1999. Well, it depends a bit on which opinion poll you look at and how you interpret the results. Still, there's no escaping the fact that Putin remains popular. The big question is, could a Ukraine-style orange revolution happen in Russia? To find out more about grassroots support for change, I've come to a Moscow internet cafe to meet Alexander Korsunov, who runs a website called Skazinet, or Say No. Hi, Alexander. I'm Lucy Ash from BBC. Hi, Lucy. Nice to meet you. Hi. Can you show me your site? Yeah, sure. So, now we have entered the main page. Here we can see the map of Russia, and there are a lot of cities. There are about more than 100 cities on it. And they got little like red flames on each yeah, of them. Yeah, there are flames on them and it means that in this city there had happened a demonstration during these two months. So we can just uh, click on this city and you can see what happened. About yes. Information about uh, demonstrations. We'll find some pictures for you now. Just a minute. Ah, what is that? There's a, there, I can see a picture of um, something lying on the snow and in flames. What is it? it? It's, it's an effigy of Putin that had been burned during the demonstration in Perm. In it's Perm? In the Urals? Uh, yeah. And it was just demonstration against uh, this social reform, and then they burned up Putin's effigy. <laughs> Did they show that on television? No, of course no. <laughs> Television was the decisive force in turning Putin from an obscure ex-KGB spy into a president. Once in the Kremlin, he didn't want such a powerful political tool in the hands of even his mildest critics. So today's news programmes show mainly positive stories about Russia. Alexander says his website is just trying to fill the information gap. I really believe that people are smart people in Russia, so they can make their own choice. For example, when you see this map with all, all these cities burning, just you will realize that there is a real some, some problem with it. I think there is going to be some new oppositional power. Now it's, it's just in the air, you know. Just everybody feels that something is going to happen. That view might be shared by intelligence officers, since most days Alexander's site is checked out by visitors from the Russian security ministry there are increasing signs that a nervous Kremlin is doing whatever it can to stop the country from going orange. 
Music was a crucial factor in boosting morale throughout the fortnight of street protests in the Ukrainian capital Kiev last December. Maybe that's why Russia's leading rock stars were invited to a secret meeting in a hotel this March. Putin's deputy chief of staff told the musicians that if something happens, they should at the very least remain neutral. But neutrality isn't enough. The Kremlin's going on the offensive as well. There are about 150 young men and women in this hall at a cross-country ski resort three hours' drive from Moscow. They're sitting around tables with coloured pens and big sheets of white paper because they've been asked to invent and read out catchy slogans about their feelings for Russia. (laughs) Russia's future's in our hands. We will resurrect our country forward with Russia. America can't outshine us, they shout, as a wiry man in a tracksuit springs between the tables, urging them on. We've been granted unique access to a training session of a new pro-Putin youth group called NASHI, Our People. What we are doing here is looking for young people with leadership qualities. After two days of training, we'll pick out the most ambitious ones, the ones who haven't lost their hope in Russia. Vasily Yakomenko, the founder of NASHI, is a clean-cut young man with a steely gaze. He's one of very few people I meet in Russia today who still seems genuinely enthusiastic about Putin. But he says the president's surrounded by bureaucrats who come from a generation of defeatists. So he has grand plans to train a new generation of 100,000 young Russians, some of whom he claims will be ready by 2009 to start running the country. I want this to be a mass movement of hundreds of thousands of people. Firstly, to provide a pool of talented young professionals, and secondly, to make sure such people are recognized and respected in our society. The tragedy of our country at the moment is that Putin is the only person who believes democracy and self-rule can be combined in Russia. It is clear that if we start selling everything off, say Yukos, the oil company, goes to the Americans, for example, Sibnev goes to someone else, pretty soon all our assets will follow the money and go abroad. We'll still be living here, but everything buried under the ground or growing on top of it won't belong to us. Either we act now or we'll lose our sovereignty. Russia has already lost it, according to one well-known Kremlin spin doctor. Stanislav Bielkovsky predicted the arrest of the politically ambitious businessman Mikhail Khodakovsky. Bielkovsky's report may have triggered the crisis around Khodakovsky's oil firm Yukus in 2003. Bielkovsky had warned that Putin could be overthrown by oligarchs, the business elite. He was hoping for radical change. But now he thinks Putin has become part of this clique. 99% of the representatives of this governing class have banking accounts in the United States and Western Europe. They have property outside Russia. Uh, They want their children to be educated in Anglo-Saxon world. Everything they are thinking about is how to leave this country, having got everything worth taking from it, and to forget about this civilization, about this country. And those people are real power in the country for the past 14 years. And Putin undoubtedly belongs to this very class.
But you were talking very differently not very long ago, weren't you? I mean, when you predicted there would be a crackdown on the oligarchs here, you mm-hmm. predicted the um, jailing of Khodakovsky, mm-hmm. the UKOS chief. Are you disappointed then that Mr. Putin didn't go further? Yeah, undoubtedly. I am disappointed, and numerous people who think like me, including some people in Putin's inner circle, are disillusioned as well, because he's not a man of power. He's afraid of power. The power is a big burden for him, almost unbearable burden. If these forceful insiders are really disillusioned, what will happen to Vladimir Putin? Could he be toppled in the middle of a game of big-stakes monopoly with Russia's more obedient oligarchs? Or does he have another trick up his sleeve? Vyacheslav Nikonov tells me there's no great mystery to Putin. He's a logical choice for a country which abolished serfdom less than 150 years ago. His political instincts are understandable. He is uh, quite liberal on economic affairs. He's quite tough on government matters. In the country with Tsarist political traditions, a popular leader can move the country into the democratic direction, even if the country doesn't want that. But can he? Analyst Lilia Shevtsova doesn't think so. I truly believe that Putin at the beginning was sincere with his big dream about Russia. But the way he chose to proceed with his dream appeared to be totally wrong. Now we have Russia with 75% of population living in the cities. We have Russia when approximately 7 million of people are using Internet. 20 million of people every year go to Turkey and to, to the Greek resorts. So it's a new country, and you cannot push Russia towards the civilization and into Europe, having the same czar and personified power, unaccountable power in the Kremlin. So President Putin was wrong from the very beginning. But instead of correcting the mistake, the people in the Kremlin continue to to walk towards the dead end. It's fear of this dead end that's prompted many of Russia's neighbours to look further west. But are they really better off outside Moscow's sphere of influence? Next week, in the second part of this BBC World Service documentary, I'll be looking at Putin's strategy in Russia's backyard, the Commonwealth of Independent States. President Vladimir Putin of Russia looks down from a podium as troops march past in the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, last October. Putin's visit happens to be taking place during a bitterly contested presidential election campaign. Up on the podium, looking rather small in his long grey coat, Putin is standing right next to Moscow's preferred candidate, Ukraine's beefy Prime Minister Viktor Yanukovych. During his three-day tour, the Russian president pops up on a live phone-in on Ukrainian TV. It's thanks to the government of Yanukovych that Ukraine has achieved serious economic growth, Putin tells his audience. But this unsubtle interference in the domestic affairs of a neighbouring country badly misfires. A few weeks later, the streets of Kiev are filled with hundreds of thousands of protesters, outraged by a blatantly falsified election result. 
As the Ukrainian opposition leader Viktor Yushchenko becomes the hero of the Orange Revolution, it's clear that the strongman in the Kremlin has backed a loser. And it's not the first time that Putin has suffered a major setback in the area the Russians call the near abroad, the former Soviet republics. The Russian president was first caught off guard in November 2003, when crowds stormed the parliament in the Georgian capital, Tbilisi, and the opposition leader, Mikhailo Misha Saakashvili, took power. The uprising was christened the Rose Revolution for the rose petals scattered by victorious demonstrators. In March this year, the regime in the Central Asian Republic of Kyrgyzstan was also overthrown, as Russia looked on from the sidelines. Soon afterwards, neighbouring Uzbekistan was shaken by a violent revolt. Turmoil has engulfed Russia's borders. In the second part of this BBC World Service series, Putin's Russia 2005, I'll be asking why Moscow has failed to exert its influence on the Commonwealth of Independent States, or the CIS, the successor organisation to the USSR. President Putin blamed today's troubles on events nearly 14 years ago in a recent address to the Russian parliament. Putin policy in CIS failed everywhere. Everywhere. Georgia, Ukraine, Belarus, Kyrgyzia, everywhere. Boris Nemtsov, one of Russia's leading liberal politicians, says it's time for Putin to do some hard thinking. The reason why it's happened, he's a Soviet-thinking man. I want to ask only one question to Kremlin officials. Guys, why Georgians, why Ukrainians, why Asian countries hate Russia? What's the reason? Maybe you have to look at the mirror and find something in your eyes. Unfortunately, there is no such kind of understanding inside Kremlin. Nowhere is this lack of understanding more keenly felt than in Georgia, Russia's traditional ally to the south and the birthplace of Joseph Stalin. It may be small compared to Ukraine, yet this nation of five million people ignited the recent string of revolutions on Russia's doorstep. And Georgia has also antagonized the Kremlin by seeking not just divorce, but a second marriage. Everybody should understand, especially the politicians in Russia, that the world has been changed. Just outside the capital, Tbilisi, Irakli Akruashvili, Georgia's defence minister, is visiting an army training camp, which once belonged to the Red Army. This is not the years like 80s or 70s, so the world has been changed, the standards have been changed, and uh, their approaches should be, should be changed to the Georgia. This is not a country like it was in the beginning of 90s. Today, Minister Akruashvili is accompanied by a coachload of U.S. senators. They've come to inspect Georgian troops who've been trained here by American Marines before a tour of duty in Iraq. The U.S. has already paid $65 million to train and equip the Georgian army and plans to expand its programme. Richard Durbin, one of the senators visiting today, thinks it's money well spent. We were very encouraged today because uh, the American military officers tell us 
that the Georgian soldiers are really ready for a service in Iraq and uh, certainly to defend Georgia. These um, increasing ties with NATO, with the European Union, does that not risk alienating uh, Georgia's very powerful neighbor to the north, Russia? I hope that the people of Russia understand that uh, Georgia can be friendly to Russia and also establish new relationships with the West. The Cold War is over, and those who are still fighting it are looking to the past and not to the future. Russian troops have been in Georgia for more than two centuries. The country was annexed first by Tsar Paul I in 1801 and later by the Bolsheviks. But now that Georgia has welcomed US troops onto its soil, it's trying to send the Russians back home. The remnants of the Soviet military presence, two dilapidated army bases, have become the subject of an increasingly bad-tempered standoff between Moscow and Tbilisi. But Mikhail Margelov, the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the upper house of the Russian parliament, insists that the Russian soldiers will not be hounded out. In our history, we had a very quick withdrawal of our troops from Eastern Europe when soldiers and officers were practically thrown into the snow without having proper barracks and proper storage for military equipment. It was a kind of humiliation which is deep in the hearts of uh, military people. Putin thinks, and many people in our elite think, that army should not be treated the way it was treated under Yeltsin. Margelov adds that the troops will leave, but only when it suits them, at their own pace. The Georgians, though, are in no mood to wait. Georgia's foreign minister, Salome Zorabishvili, was brought up in an émigré family in France and used to be the French ambassador here before Saakashvili invited her to join his government. She's every bit the elegant Parisian diplomat, but when it comes to the Russian army, she doesn't mince her words. There is no trust between the two countries, and especially, I would say, from our side towards Russia. They, of course, cannot say that it's because they're trying to keep a political leverage and to put pressure on a neighborly sovereign country. That wouldn't be uh, acceptable. Sometimes when they're pushed, uh, they say that it's a question of money, that they don't have the money to withdraw those uh, 3,800 military personnel from the military bases. It's not very credible. It's not just the soldiers on the old army bases which worry the Georgians. They're also concerned about more Russian military entering their country under the pretext of fighting terrorism. In 2002, Moscow claimed bandits from the breakaway Republic of Chechnya and al-Qaeda fighters were hiding in the northeast corner of Georgia. A Russian airstrike killed a villager and wounded seven others. The Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE, tried to defuse the tension. This body, founded during the Cold War, works to promote peaceful transition to democracy, especially in Eastern Europe. It sent international monitors to keep a close eye on the Russian-Georgian border. But at the beginning of this year, Russia vetoed the border operation, and the OSCE helicopters have now gone. Minister Zurabishvili says that's a mistake. That could mean serious confrontation. Each time we have a border violation, we are never able to prove that there was a border violation. And the Russians look around and say, well, it's probably somebody else, but we have only one neighbor at that border. We think that 100 non-military personnel that is there only for observing is a very low cost for ensuring lack of tension at this border especially because there is Chechnya on the other side and a very unstable situation there. 
Sergei Yastrzemski, Putin's former spokesman on Chechnya, and now his envoy to the European Union, disagrees. He argues that the OSCE's border patrol was ineffective and expensive. But it's no secret that Moscow blames the organization for helping to incite the multicolored revolutions in Russia's near abroad. Yastrzemski admits Russia was infuriated by the organization's condemnations of rigged elections in Georgia, Ukraine, and Kyrgyzstan. There are many countries, different process, different point of view, and the observators from the OSCE make the universal judgment about what is democratic, what is not democratic, without asking the founders of the organization. So our proposal has been to resolve together inside of the OSCE which are criteria of democratism of any elections, and not only in the post-Soviet space, but also in the rest of European continent. Why not to use the OSCE in the Balkans or Kosovo? Or um, why not to use the OSCE more efficiently to resolve the problems of Russian-speaking minorities in uh, Latvia and Estonia, where we see about 600,000 non-citizens in the two republics, uh, if it corresponds to the European standards of human rights? No, for sure no. The uh, Western democracies closed their eyes to that fact. So you think there's a double standard going on? Absolutely, right. As a matter of fact, OSCE monitors have scrutinized elections in the Balkans, Western Europe and the US. Anyway, the irony is Russia did help to end local wars in Moldova, Georgia, Azerbaijan and Tajikistan in the early 90s. Now, though, many neighboring countries see the Russian military presence less as a stabilizing factor and more as a crude lever of power. And Laura and I are proud to stand with the courageous people of Georgia in this place that has earned a proud name, Freedom Square. U.S. President George Bush addresses adoring crowds in Tbilisi on his visit to Georgia last month. Putin is increasingly frustrated that America is snatching the political initiative out of his hands, and not just in Georgia. After 9-11, Putin famously rang Bush to offer Russia's support in what became the War on Terror. As a result, U.S. military bases were set up in two former Central Asian republics, Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan. American and West European money is funding hundreds of pro-Western groups across the CIS. Last December, for example, Ukraine was the third biggest recipient of U.S. aid after Israel and Egypt. This is the gas pipeline. Okay, are we going to see the oil pipeline? The oil pipeline is about 15 meters to our left, and it's been backfilled already. Um, Construction's been complete on that section for some time now. Apart from flexing its military muscle, Moscow has another way of exerting influence in the post-Soviet space, its vast energy resources. But the Kremlin's monopoly is being challenged. Oil and gas are the high stakes to play for, in a new great game between East and West. With American backing, the British oil giant BP is building the first major pipeline from the Caspian oil fields to bypass Russian territory. It runs more than a 1,000 miles from Azerbaijan to Turkey through Georgia. At the construction site near Tbilisi, the sections of pipe look like fat pieces of licorice 
stretching across the plain. Next to one of the trenches where they're laying a parallel gas pipeline, I meet a Georgian archaeologist employed by BP, David Khoshtaria. We find lots of burials, settlements, 50 metres from here. The medieval settlement was excavated with uh, dwellings, with uh, wine cellars, with uh, storage rooms. There were some artefacts, ceramics. It's really good discovery. Of course, it's, it, it was discovered due to pipeline construction. So that's one of the benefits? It's not the main benefit. The main benefit is economical aspect, of course. It's a way to finish with the energetic uh, dependence from Russia, to have other sources of gas, which is extremely important for Georgia. It's crucial for Georgia. But the gas from this pipeline won't come on stream until the end of next year, and Georgia is plagued by power cuts. The Russian monopoly Gazprom has offered to guarantee supplies and to revamp the crumbling pipe infrastructure if it's allowed to buy Georgia's gas network. Mikhail Saakashvili, the Georgian president, was ready to sign up to the deal, but there was fierce resistance from anti-Russian MPs in his parliament and from the US embassy. Why, I asked the ambassador, Richard Miles. Well, I just restated uh, U.S. government policy, which was to encourage the Georgians to keep it in their own hands. Georgia is energy dependent on Russia, and no country really should be dependent on one other country for its primary energy uh, supply. So it would not make a lot of sense for us to turn over a key element of one's energy structure to that country on which you already depend it. Comments like this make Alexander Medvedev, the man in charge of Gazprom's export policy, bristle with indignation. It's, it's strange to hear. It's like our ambassadors will comment about involvement of the say, major American companies in some, in some neighborhood countries. I believe it's absolutely out of any business ethics. What if the Russians are the best place to invest because of their technical know-how and market position in the region? Kakha Benzukidze has a foot in both camps. He's Georgia's new Minister of Economic Development, but he made his name and fortune as an industrialist in Russia. And these days he's often attacked by nationalists who oppose any Russian involvement in privatization. Simultaneously, I'm a Russian and U.S. agent working for George Soros and uh, Vladimir Putin together. I'm looking to destroy Georgian nation by selling mining company. In my understanding, absolute idiocy. But uh, this is coming from the idea that there is something strategic. Of course, politics is very important, but sometimes we are mixing true politics, which is about providing freedom and safety to nation, with blah, blah, blah about who is whose friend, which actually means nothing. America, though, is busy picking and exploiting strategic friends all over the CIS. Four years ago, George Bush said he looked into Putin's eyes and saw his soul. Now that relationship's in trouble as Putin feels increasingly outmaneuvered by Washington. And Bush has found himself a new buddy in the Caucasus, according to U.S. Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid. When I told President Bush that we were coming to Georgia, he was excited about it, literally. And he said, you're going to love this guy. And we really do. What a man of enthusiasm. I don't know what the word charisma really means, but if it does have a description in a human being, it's certainly your president.
This Russian band called Uma Thurman does know how to define charisma. In this song, an ordinary Russian man, Vova, fantasizes about flying to Hollywood and becoming an instant hit with Uma, the sultry star beloved of the American film director Quentin Tarantino. Of course, the song is strictly tongue-in-cheek. These days, the idea of a seductive Russia may be wishful thinking, especially in former republics like Georgia. Sharena Shavadashvili edits a glossy magazine in Tbilisi called Hot Chocolate. She says young Georgians are increasingly oblivious to contemporary Russian culture, and that's why she's devoted this issue of the magazine to Moscow's hottest new fashion designers, artists and filmmakers. Since the sort of beginning of this political friction between Georgia and Russia, we try to ignore, you know, everything that's Russian in this country, and I don't think that's exactly a very healthy tendency. For example, my little sister, who is 13, she knows five languages already, but the only language she refuses to learn is Russian. You always get, let's say, in the clubs, DJs coming from Europe, from London, from France, from here, from there, but you never get any Russian DJs because that's just not cool anymore. President Putin is apparently worried by all of this and has just formed a new department to promote Russian culture in the former republics. Using soft power instead of guns or gas sounds like a good idea, but the man appointed to run the new department seems an odd choice. Madias Kalyerov's last job was advising Ukraine's losing presidential candidate Viktor Yanukovych. In a phone call, Kalyerov refuses to give the BBC any details about the objectives of his department, or about any cultural initiatives he's planning. So, just how is he going to win hearts and minds? This isn't about winning. This is not a war. This is our duty. For the majority of countries in the post-Soviet space, Russian culture has meant international culture. And there is a desire in our neighbors to preserve this world. In these countries, Russian culture is synonymous for culture itself, for quality culture. We in Russia and our neighbors must ask what the consequences will be if they join the European Union, for example. We must preserve our culture and save our world from becoming a backwater. Vyacheslav Nikonov, a political analyst close to the Kremlin, subscribes to this idea that Russia is under siege. He believes that Putin has been forced to carve out a new destiny for his country in the face of Western hostility. Putin really belongs to this conservative part of political spectrum in Western terms. I would describe his political philosophy as a sort of Russian gaullism. I've never heard of any country which would have any sympathy to an alliance to which you do not belong, which is approaching your borders despite your objections, and which is the largest military machine on earth. After the end of the Cold War, uh, the East European, Central European country got very clear message from the West, you're one of us. As for Russia, that was never the case. We still have not answered the questions where we belong, whether we are East or West, European or Asian, and uh, that is a very serious identity crisis. Georgian businessman and politician Kacha Benzukidze agrees Russia is suffering an identity crisis, but he blames the man in the Kremlin rather than the outside world. The question is what Russia wants about Georgia. 
No one in Russia can give you direct and equivocal real answer on that question. That's part of some big game, maybe, but I'm not sure that someone who is playing that game in Russia really knows the rules. There is no Russian policy about Georgia. Maybe that's the problem of all empires. It's some type of illness. But the British Empire was cured effectively, and maybe in case of Russia it will take more time. Why do you think that President Putin so misjudged the situation in Ukraine? Was that also not understanding the rules of the game? I think that's the part of a big mistake in the Kremlin, that situations can be managed. There is the idea of managed democracy, which is not democracy. It's some fake. Situations cannot be managed. Whether he's trying to manage internal affairs or the loss of influence in Russia's peripheries, Putin is facing a desperately difficult task. He's trapped by Russia's colonial legacy, and he's trapped by a vicious circle of his own making. The more mistakes he makes, the more he tightens the screws. But as we've heard throughout this BBC World Service documentary, the authoritarian methods he's increasingly wedded to may in the end fail to deliver for a modern Russia.